listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number 518. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoors Station, the longest running outdoors podcast in the world, producing a variety of podcasts to entertain, inform and inspire people to appreciate and enjoy the world around us. I'm Bob Cartwright, your host, and looking at this self-isolation landscape we now find ourselves in, can I just remind you that all of the 500-plus podcasts are still available for you to listen to at any time if you need something outdoors-related to help pass the time during these coming fraught weeks. The majority of podcasts are, of course, land-based, However, occasionally we dip our toes into the water, so to speak, and venture off shore. Today's podcast is one to take you away from all this media doom and gloom and miserable weather. And join me as I chat with Phil Plume about a subject I know very little about, adventure supping. Now, what is adventure supping? Well, it's stand-up paddleboarding with an adventurous twist. In my conversation with Phil, you'll learn all about the appeal of this hobby and the various sports aspects it now involves. More importantly, how adventure supping led Phil to circumnavigate a Mediterranean island during early spring 2019, wild camping and sleeping under the stars along the way. So we begin our conversation with the most basic of questions. What is stand-up paddleboarding? So stand-up paddleboarding um, is a, a water sport. Um, it's basically, to condense it right down to the basics, it's a, um, a surfboard, a big surfboard, with a one-handled paddle, as like you get in a Canadian canoe. And you stand on the board and you use the paddle and you you propel yourself through the water. Um, so there's a number of different disciplines. There's there's general cruising around. Uh, there's racing. So there's like 14 foot uh, to 17, 18 foot race boards. Um, so that's short courses, technical courses, uh, distance. Um, there's also surfing, uh, the sup yoga. Um, all, all sorts of different disciplines uh, involved in it. Uh, and it's one of the fastest growing uh, water sports in the world. So how stable are these platforms? Because I've seen the stand-up paddleboarding uh, yoga locally, and obviously I've seen a few people in the press that have done various things on a, a stand-up paddleboard. But are they generally a, like a uniform thickness and stability, or are, is there different levels of stability? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different types, an awful lot of different types. So I've just got a brand new touring paddle board. Um, it's a Fanatic board. And um, that is 35 inches wide. It's really thick. It's got it's inflatable, so it's got a lot of buoyancy in there. Uh, the race boards now, uh, the thinnest ones are about uh, 21 inches wide. Um, and you need to be quite advanced to be able to paddle those. Uh, the wide one that I've got, anyone could pretty much jump on it and paddle it without too much trouble. 
a general beginner board. Uh, really, you're looking for anything 30 inches up, really. Uh, so they're usually about 32 inches wide for a beginner board. Um, and then the the surfing boards around 29 inches. Uh, there's all sorts of different factors that come into there. The thickness of the, the board, the thickness of the rails, which is the edge around the board. The thicker the rail, then the more uh, effort or pressure you need to sink that rail under the water. So therefore, the more stability it gives you because it takes more weight to push it under. So it's got more resistance and it keeps you upright. Um, so there's there's a, a huge range of different boards and really the board specializes depending on what you want to use it for. So I'm presuming from what you said then, they are remarkably stable and hence that's the reason probably it's growing so well in popularity and like canoes where people are always continually feeling like they fall in. I'm guessing from the way you describe it that even a big guy like me actually would be quite stable on one of these platforms. Uh, with the right board, yeah. Uh, it's it's all about picking a board that's got the right width, really. Um, and the inflatable boards now are really good for, for learning on because... They've got big, thin, thick, chunky rails, lots of buoyancy. And as I said, to sink that rail and tip over, you've got to put a lot of weight onto it. So it, it pushes you back up again. So um, it's it's different to kayaking and canoeing. With a, with a kayak or canoe, you, you're in and you're pretty much off straight away. Uh, with surfing, there's a, there's a bit more learning to be done, uh, how to get up on your feet, for example. But anyone can paddleboard within half an hour quite easily and i presume purely from the the science of it that obviously if you're standing up you're acting a bit like a sail so on a windy day it can be pretty hard work yeah if you're paddling against the wind it's it is hard work uh if you're paddling with the wind uh, as i mentioned at the beginning that can be um that can be really good and it, it fires you off downwind and and you generate extra speed to be able to paddle onto the wave uh, for a beginner, really, you need to avoid wind because uh, it can blow you sideways and, and especially paddling into the wind. So tell me, what's your history then? How did you actually get into this and, and what sort of uh, excites you about it? So I am a windsurfer uh, historically. So I started windsurfing about uh, 18 years ago. And then paddleboarding appeared about nine years ago, ten years ago. And a lot of people started doing it as, a, as something to do when it wasn't windy. So I had a go at it. And coming from a windsurfing background, windsurfing is all about going fast. Um, and I jumped on the paddleboard and all I wanted to do was go fast. <laughs> and, and it didn't really do that. It didn't really have that adrenaline buzz for me. Uh, so I sort of... I sort of discarded it and thought it's not really exciting enough. And then another probably eight months went past, something like that. And I entered a race down at uh, Sandbanks. I'd never raced before. I'd never really paddled much before as well. Uh, and I borrowed a, a race board and off I went. <laughs> and, I, and I paddled out and I got to the mark and I, I couldn't actually turn around because the longer the board and the sharper the bow the harder it is to turn because it's got resistance from the fin at the back and the sharp bow at the front. So it's hard to turn. So I couldn't actually turn around, but I got around eventually finished the race. Um, and that 
race, being on the start line with other people and the anticipation of the, the gun or the, the whistle or the horn or whatever going off, um, that, start, that gave me a bit of a buzz then. So I bought myself uh, one of the older style paddle boards, which would, literally was just a big surfboard. And I entered some races on that one as well. And I also started surfing that and I was getting that same buzz from surfing the paddleboard that I was from windsurfing. And I started racing that paddleboard and I was doing quite well. So the, there's different categories. There was the race class and there was the surfboard class. So put simply, the raceboard class are long pointy boards and the surfboard class are a big surfboard. So shorter, fatter, and, and no shape, just a, like a flat shape rather than a, a bow. And, um, yeah, I did quite well at the racing. I, race, I remember racing in one race, and the guy who came second in my class thought he'd won because I was paddling up with all the race balls. So um, I managed to pick up some uh, sponsorship from a, a brand called Fanatic at Ion, and I started racing in the UK race team. Uh, can I them. just can I just pause you there? Can yeah. you just describe what these races consist of? Because I, I have no idea whether we're talking over a hundred meters, sort of a kilometer or ten kilometers. Okay, so back in those days, um, the races were about six kilometers uh, to ten kilometers, pretty much all of them. Um, it's a lot different now. So you've got your ultra endurance races. Um, you've got technical races. So a technical race, you will start from a point and you'll do several laps of a course. So you, you might do six laps of a, a 1K course. And within that course, there'll be uh, five or six turns, boy turns. And they'll be, you know, tighter than a 90 degree, a 45 degree turn so that you have to switch back on yourself and, and on to the next boy. And you'll do multiple laps of that type of race. Uh, and then you've got a straight distance race. So there's there's quite a long running one, which is one of the first long ones I did on the Thames, which I think is 10 miles. Um, and that's just up and down the Thames two laps um so that's pretty straightforward uh so there's, there's there's different types of races depending on on the location and the the type of person that's organized it um there's also in and out through the waves so a different type of technical race so you'll start from the beach you'll paddle out through the waves you'll you'll go around the, the course back in through the waves and then you might run around a marker on the beach back to your board and then out again that's really good fun. So there's uh, there's a UK, uh, it's called GB uh, SUP Race Series uh, at the moment. And they run, um, I think they're running six races this year. Uh, they did similar last year. And that's, that's part of a series. So you do the races, you get points, and the points are totaled up. And you have a, an overall champion, men, women, um, children as well, uh, race. And then uh, you have different age categories, so masters, veteran, and so on under that as well. So that's an organized series um, that's running in the UK, GB Sup. Um, you've, you've then got uh, B, Sup, B Super, 
who do a, a surf series. Um, and unless I'm wrong, I think that's about it in the UK. You've got some standalone races as well. So you've got races like Head of the Dart, Battle of the Thames, that are races that have been running now for, for, for a decade, for 10 years, really good, well-established races. And they, they tend to be standalone races. Um, I'm, I'm involved in organising events in Brighton uh, at a beach festival called Paddled Around the Pier. And we have a, uh, a short technical race there. Um, and last year, we I think we had 40 mainly beginners on, on basic inflatable boards that turned up and, and did the course. So that was a real beginner's race. Uh, so that was really good fun to see that. So if I could wrap that all together then, it sounds like there's activities that take place on the coast. There's sort of coastal races. There's activities that take place in rivers, um, tidal rivers, I presume, as well. And there's also activities that take place, I guess, in Scotland, lochs or, or canals or whatever up there. Is that about right? You can, you, Yes, you can paddleboard on any, any stretch of water. Uh, I, I started paddleboarding in the local river and yeah, I could only paddleboard for two kilometres at a time because there was trees over the river either end. So, yeah, lakes, rivers, sea, um, yeah, on the locks up in Scotland, it's absolutely stunning around there. And, um, for example, I've not even mentioned uh, Sup Polo yet. Um, so you can play Sup Polo. So you, you have three, four on each team. You have a special adapted paddle with a, a scoop and a hole in the end so you can scoop up a ball out of water. Uh, and that's that's played in swimming pools and uh, inflatable pools as well as on lakes. Um, so, yeah, really, really adaptable. And it's not just racing. It's, you know, most people that own subboards nowadays have taken down the beach on a summer with the kids and they have a little poodle around and the, the kids jump on and off them and it's just a great family tool to um to take away with you and have a bit of fun on really mm. no it sounds it sounds fascinating and obviously it's uh, appeals to all ages as well and and skills which is which is good because obviously it's good for people who are novices to feel they can enjoy something without having to feel it's a a big training uh, exercise to to become stable but the the main reason for this conversation is you've described uh, what what uh, sup is but you've also now taken it a stage further, and I presume you're not on your own with this, but there are people now doing various uh, um, water-based adventures with stand-up paddle balls. That's right. It's the perfect exploration craft, I think. Um, you can take a lot of kit with you. You've got the water there that does the hard work. Uh, it's not like backpacking where you've, you've got to carry all your kit on your back. Um, so you're really only limited with the amount of kit you can take by the, the size of the board. Um, you're also stood up on the board. So in a kayak, you sat down low, you're down near the surface of the water, and it, it can be hard to see over bank river banks or sea walls or, you know, uh, anything, anything that's higher than your head, really. Whereas on a paddleboard, you, you stood up high and, and you can see out over all these things. Um, the, uh, that we've now got inflatable paddleboards. They've been around for quite a while, but they're really coming into their own now. And they, they deflate. Uh, they're made out of drop stitch 
technology. Uh, so when you blow them up, they go they go really stiff. They've got little filaments, little threads inside that stick the the deck and and the bottom together, so that when you blow it up, instead of blowing up in a big round balloon, it blows up into a a platform shape with a flat top and a flat bottom. Um, and and they deflate and they roll up and they go in a bag and they uh, can go on an aeroplane as normal hold luggage. So it's it's a perfect uh, exploration tool, I think. Okay, well, we're going to come on to sort of kit details towards the yeah. end because I think that's probably the best way of, of keeping it all together in one section. But the the reason for this conversation was you told me that you did a fantastic circumnavigation of the island of Mallorca last year using a stand-up paddleboard. Did I read this right? You were just flying out with just hand luggage? No, I I had hand luggage and I had the board rolled up in the hold. Okay, so it's just the board and a bit of hand luggage then. So, as I say, we'll come on to what you actually consisted of equipment-wise at the end, but if you can give us a, a gist of, of what the intention was and how you found it, really. Back to your earlier comment about people are using paddleboards for exploration. There's, there's quite a lot of people doing that now, and I've watched other people take on their adventures, and it's something that I've always wanted to do. And um, I've got a family... Uh, the kids are a bit older now, but previous years they've been younger and we've, we've not been able to work around that. And I've seen these people go off and do their adventures and I've been quite envious of what they're doing because I can paddle, I know I can do the distance that I wanted to do. I wanted to go on my own adventure and I wanted to do multiple days and I wanted to do wild camping. So I, I had a few ideas in my head. Uh, the first one, I wanted to paddle from London to Paris um, which I, I wanted to go and have fun. Um, and paddling from London to Paris involved paperwork paddling through London, uh, paperwork and quite a lot of expense to paddle a, a, across the channel with support boats. And then when I did more research in, in Paris, it's not you're not permitted to paddle on the Seine through Paris. So that one was out. So... I was, I was getting a bit desperate because I had a time slot I needed to to head for. So I put uh, just put a search into Google, uh, cheap flights to Europe, and Palmer popped up. So I had a look at Palmer. I had a look at Mallorca. I measured it. And it was, by measurements, about 350 kilometers around. And that was c- cutting out some of the bays. So doable in a week. And the best bit is... Uh, the airport is right on the beach. Uh, so in my head, it'd be quite simple. I'd fly into Parma, walk to the beach, paddleboard around the, the island, walk back to the airport and fly home. <laughs> so um, so that's why I chose Mallorca, really. Cheap flights and a doable distance. Okay, so let's actually get on to the adventure itself then. So you arrived at the airport and did it go to plan? Did you just saunter down to the beach with your with your, um, with your gear well, in hand? Actually, no, it didn't go to plan. I, I had a week booked off work to do this, um, and I, I wanted to use a minimal amount of holidays, so I picked uh, the Easter weekend. So that would mean that I, c- I could take uh, four days holiday and, and still have a decent time to get around. Um, the week... Before I went, the weather forecast was pretty dismal for Mallorca. 
uh, gale force winds on the first day and just terrible. It, it would have just been a waste of time going. So it actually didn't go to plan before I even set off. Um, so I had to, I've got a very understanding boss. Uh, so I, uh, had a chat with him and I said, can I just dock me holidays on to the next week? Uh, and he said, yes, no problem. So I went the week after I should have gone, um, which bumped up the cost a little bit cause I had to change my flights, but, um, it got me there. And then when I actually got there, it did actually go to plan. Um, I scoped out somewhere to stay on the first night which was a field next to the airport um i when i got to the airport i realized it was a little bit longer of a walk than i thought it was going to be um so i got chatting with a guy on the plane and he gave me a lift and dropped me off looked at me a bit strange because he dropped me off in this field in the middle of nowhere <laughs> in Bjorka with my bags and uh, said what are you sleeping there and i went yeah i'll be all right um and then, yeah, I woke up in the next morning, walked to the beach, and, and I set off. So, yes, it did go to plan. The, uh, the, the blowing up of the board, before we get any further, is it, yeah. you, is it a manual? Is it just huff and puff, or do you have a pump or some kind? No, there's a, there's a pump. So it's a high-volume pump, because these boards, they take a lot of air uh, initially to fill them up. And then you, you've got a little toggle on there, and that puts a higher pressure in it. A bit, bit like a, a bike pump. You get high volume bike pumps, then you flick a switch and you put pressure in. I actually cheated though because um, I set off from a surf center and they had a compressor, so I got them to pump it up for me. Oh, excellent! Okay, yeah. shows, shows you thinking, as they say. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was the weather like? How did it go? We've only got so much time to talk about this, and I think yeah. you did six nights. Did you say six nights on your on your trip? Uh, yes, I did six nights. I could not have asked for better weather. It was unbelievable. Um, I got in touch with a guy on the island, a guy that runs a surf centre, a guy called Ruben, um, and he was giving me advice. I used to call him every day all the way around, and he said, I, I can't believe this weather. Um, it's amazing. Really light winds. I had a wind on the – I had a crosswind on the first day, uh, which meant that I had to paddle for 30 kilometres on my left-hand side only, uh, so that was a bit of a challenge. Gave me a few blisters. Uh, the second day, I had a bit of a bit of a headwind. So again, a bit of a challenge. But then after that, it was light winds, mill pond seas, pretty much all the way around. I really couldn't have asked for any better. Uh, I, had, I had a little bit of rain on my last, sorry, on my penultimate day of paddling, and um, but I finished paddling by that point, and I was undercover. Uh, nice and dry so yeah I couldn't have asked for better weather You're listening to the award winning outdoorstation.co.uk sharing the passion appreciation and understanding for the outdoors world Now, you set off and went anti-clockwise around the island, as I understand it, and you were wild camping. So how did it feel as you set off along the coast and you could see these wonderful uh, cliff faces and presumably beaches occasionally? Did you feel at all apprehensive about pitching up anywhere? A little bit. I, I hadn't planned anywhere to stop 
Um, I, I think I was a little bit naive in the trip, really. I just I just decided to go and I just got the kit together and and I went. Um, I knew roughly well. I know how far I can paddle in a day, uh, and I knew how far I would be able to paddle that board in a day. Uh, so I just set off really. So I had a, I had a rough idea of where to go. Um, my contact on the island, Ruben, he, he sort of gave me three options every day, and he said if if you can make it, get to location a if you if you're struggling location b and if you're really having a bad day stop at location c um so i aimed for those locations some some days i, I hit them some days i didn't and then I, I used to just have a look on the phone or google maps and, and look if i could find a little bay of somewhere quite secluded um and yeah i just picked a spot and something somewhere that looked nice and and went for it but i had no plans in advance okay and and sort of what time of the day then did you finish and rock up to these these uh, campsites or camping areas uh well obviously i I aimed to get there before it got dark uh and i think it got dark uh about six o'clock something like that um so yeah i usually i used to aim to get there if i could an hour before it got dark half an hour before it got dark at the latest, have a little scope around. Um, yeah, so, so that I knew where I were, uh, knew where I was. And I, I'd have a look at the area around as well, see if there were any houses, see if there was anyone that was going to um, stumble across me in the night. And and did anybody at all in the entire trip? Um, yeah, there's a funny story. Um, one, of the, one of the places I stayed, I turned up there, and it was one of the recommendations from Ruben and, and a, uh, a place called Cala San Vicente. And I turned up in this little bay. Uh, there was houses and hotels either side. And I, where am I going to wild camp here? There's there's just nowhere out of the way. There's nowhere secluded. So um, I stashed my kit. I found a I found a cave on the beach, but it was at a 45 degree angle and full of sand flies. So I thought I can't sleep in there. And um, so I went, I walked into town, got a bit of grub, came back, and I ended up sleeping underneath some straw parasols, two straw parasols without the sticks on that I, I lent up against a um, a sun lounger, and I, and I crawled under there against a wall. And the next morning, I, I was woken up at three o'clock in the morning by uh, some goats <laughs> jumping around on top of my little house. Um, and then about five o'clock, a couple of hours later, um, I didn't know this, but it, it was a bank holiday this day. And a lot of people go fishing on a bank holiday. So I got woken up by the fishermen getting their boats out. And, um, yeah, one of them was relieving himself on the other side of the wall, which was <laughs> not very pleasant. Uh, but they didn't know I was there. I, I waited till they'd gone till I called out. So no one actually found me anywhere. Um, so yeah, it was fun. Was it easy? I mean, is it an easy island to do coastal wild wild camping on then, or were you just lucky because it was sort of slightly out of season? Uh, I think I think yeah, I think if you're going to do that, it's out of season. Um, is the best time to do it. It's illegal on the island. Um, there's a lot of tourists go there, and they don't want people just sleeping on the beaches. So. If you were discovered there, I think you'd get moved on. Um, 
I was very lucky that it was out of season. Um, although, having said that, there was one beach I stopped at and there was a, a hostel there on the beach. Uh, and if it had been open, I could have phoned up a couple of days in advance and I could have got myself a place in there and a cooker in there and a, a proper bed for the night. So um, there are a few opportunities like that around the coast uh, that you could use. And of course, I mean, you're on the sea all the time. And as you say, it's out of season. So a lot of places were closed. So what did you do for fresh water? So you've heard the old saying, haven't you? The water in Mallorca ain't quite what it ought to be. You've heard that before? Yeah. Um, So I had that in mind. Uh, So I actually started buying bottled water. And then about halfway around, I stopped at a beach and and, and I didn't really think about it. I was disposing of the bottles responsibly and... And I stopped at this beach and it was full of plastic bottles and bottle tops. And I said, well, I, I can't, why am I buying water? I can't buy water uh, anymore. So after that day, I started uh, getting the bottles that I had refilled. Uh, so I'd just stop off at a, um, there's a lot of cafes open and places like that. So I'd stop off somewhere, resupply, have a coffee, charge up my equipment and, and get them to fill the water up and the water's fine <laughs> not a problem at all even even Ruben the guy on the island he said don't drink the water it's not very nice but I found it absolutely fine I don't know why I didn't do that from the beginning in the whole circumnavigation then was there at any time did you feel in peril or that it was a, a dangerous trip to do or were you feeling very comfortable and confident the whole way through so be- because the weather was so good I felt pretty comfortable the whole way the whole way around now I've been paddleboarding for uh, nine years. I've done some pretty extreme races. So I've, I've paddled across Scotland and, and half of that we've done in the dark. Uh, so, so my skills have been built up over a period of time. Um, there was one section around the island where I had a choice. I could go straight across the two big bays in the north, which are very big bays. So it's 20 kilometers across and 15 kilometers away from shore. So I could take 20 kilometres across or I could take 40 or 50 kilometres following the coast. And that might have been the difference in me finishing the challenge or not. So I went straight across the bays. Now, when I was out in the middle there, I did feel quite exposed and and alone. Um, But there was a lot of planning that went into that. I spoke to uh, Ruben, who was my local on the island. So he knows the island really well. We check the weather forecast in the next two days leading up to that crossing. Uh, and we were 100% confident that the wind wasn't going to pick up. And if it did, it would blow me back into the bay and it wouldn't be that strong. So I felt a little bit exposed out there, but I knew it was well planned. Um, and I knew that when I got to the other end, Ruben would be waiting for a phone call. And if he didn't get that phone call, then I'd, something had gone wrong somewhere. So um, I think that's the, the only time, really. If the weather had been a bit rougher, uh, there might be been other occasions. Uh, but for this, for this paddle, that was it. So to conclude, then, you wouldn't say it was a trip for a novice. It's definitely a trip for somebody who's got your kind of experience. Correct. Now, paddleboarding in Mallorca is excellent. There's plenty of people that do it out there, um, and it's a beautiful place to paddle. Uh, so a holiday out there, take your paddleboard, 
paddle around the bays, fine, absolutely fine. But if you're going to attempt to paddle around it, you, you need some skills to be able to do that. Well, you're making it sound, you're sort of painting pictures and making it sound quite a enjoyable, relaxing process isn't the right word, but an enjoyable time to do this. You were taking time to have a, a coffee and top, top up with grub and water and stop for a, for a chat and a few pictures, I guess, as you're going. You weren't going flat out and, and busting your gut all the way around. Um, no, I was. I was. Uh, I mean, I had pretty bad blisters. Um, so that, that first day paddling on one side... Uh, gave me some pretty severe blisters, um, so I was trying to protect those blisters for for the next two or three days after that. Uh, I finished the first day uh, and I stopped on the island and I was my back was aching. I was aching all over and I thought well, I think I might have bitten off more than I can chew here um, because I wasn't just I, w- I went for fun and I went for the for the exploration, but I had a very tight timeline to get around the island. So just to put it in perspective, the, the fastest time to paddle around the island before I did it was 13 days. Um, and I did it in, well, I did it in seven days. Um, so, yeah, I was I was going some. Uh, I took dehydrated, I mean, we'll get onto equipment later, I'm sure, but I took dehydrated food. The reason I kept stopping for coffees was I didn't take anything hot to drink and I really missed a hot drink. So I, I just used to stop and, and top up. It was fun. It was enjoyable, but it was hard work. And what about the actual wild camping itself then? Were there any areas where you, apart from hiding yourself away, you actually enjoyed the camp and thought this is absolutely marvellous? Yeah, there was one place in particular. I I was advised to go there by two guys that I met um, while I was paddling down the uh, northwest coast, the real rugged section. And um, they said to me, Head for there's a white crane on the beach in a, in a bay. Head head for the white crane, and then you go up like a boulder field. It's an, quite an eroded beach, and on the top there's a disused hydroelectric power station. So uh, really, that that don't really sound that nice. Um, but and they said no, honestly, you, you've got to go there. It's amazing. So I pulled up. I went carried all my stuff up, left the board on the beach, carried all my stuff up through the boulders. And when I got to the top, um, it's it's just a like a little plateau halfway up the cliff, and it's all grassy. Uh, there's the, the head, the header reservoir for the hydroelectric power station at the top. The water comes straight out of the mountains. It's pure, so it's, it's full of frogs. Um, and then the buildings for the power station itself were traditional Mediterranean stone built terracotta tiles. It wasn't industrial at all. Um, and I went up there and I pitched up my tarp with a couple of bits of stick and some rocks and, and climbed in there, watched the sunsets go down and just the frogs I mean, the frogs actually kept me awake a little bit in the in the pond, but just so relaxing, and I was just completely on my own. And it, and that place was absolutely stunning, absolutely beautiful. Um, Ruben, the guy that was advising me, he's lived on the island all his life, and when I told him about it, he'd, he'd never heard of it. So a proper little secluded spot. It was amazing. 
Fantastic and fantastic. Now, you did this during April, May, so it was obviously a good time of year to do this. And as you say, the spring is really sprung by that time. Did you see any marine life that was uh, joining you for the journey at all during the circumnavigation? Lots and lots of jellyfish <laughs> of, of different types. Um, I was really hoping that I'd see dolphins. And I did. I did see a dolphin. It's quite an exciting moment. It's one of those moments where you you like dolphin, dolphin, and then you're scrabbling to get a camera to film it. By the time you've done that, it's gone. Um, but I only saw one for a fleeting moment. Um, the ironic thing is, when I came home, so I lived down near Bogner Regis on the south coast. Uh, a few weeks after, I went for a paddle at home, and I saw a pod of dolphins. <laughs> so um, you don't have to go that far to see dolphins. Now, I know looking at your blog and some of your background information, you went on a, a Yesterville uh, training course for learning how to bivy and wild camp. Did all those skills come into play? Yeah, it was really handy, actually. Um, I've, I used to be in the Scouts. So I've, I've bivied in, you know, shelters covered in with bracken and uh, the old plastic survival bags, if you like. I've, I've done that. But I've, I've not done that for quite a while. So the modern... Uh, bivy bags uh, that you use uh, yeah that, that was quite good I learned a lot um, and I learned a lot about you know just just hiding yourself away so you know if, if you if you're looking at a camping spot and there's a trail through it then it's probably not a good place to be and, and move a bit further along one way or the other um, yeah so I learned quite a lot from that on I also learned a lot on the trip uh, so the first night on the paddle there was a really heavy dew so when i went to bed it was clear night absolutely beautiful so i got in the bivy bag and went to sleep um, and then during the night there was the uh, the dew came down that was so heavy when you shone the torch in it it looked like rain um and it, it protected me the bivy bag protected me but obviously it's less effective with breathability when it's wet so everything inside got wet as well. Uh, so I learned a big lesson there of just of finding cover. You know, if you can get under something uh, and and that dew comes down, then you, you're going to be absolutely fine. Yeah, it's a it's a fine art, the art of bivying, definitely. Yeah. Okay, well let's uh, let's just come on to equipment for a bit to uh, to excite people that might be interested in in taking up this activity, whether it's purely sort of hobbying or, or more race style. Let's actually talk about the gear that you took with you for this particular trip, because obviously it sounds like you didn't take very much and you managed to get it into two small bags. Yeah, um, the board itself, I took the Fanatic Ray Air uh, touring board. Uh, it, it's the, the there's a different there's two different constructions there's a, a a basic and a premium and the premium's a bit stiffer than the basic so I took the premium uh, that's got a cargo net on the front that you can you can put bags underneath um, that board comes in a bag but the bag isn't waterproof so I actually bought a, a large um, waterproof bag and I bought a Palm River Trek bag which is 125 liters now the board when it's rolled up when it's deflated and rolled up fits inside that waterproof bag really really well a perfect fit actually so can i just stop you there and so can i just visualize or people listening to this can visualize so we're talking about if it was a 120 liter rucksack that's the sort of volume that we're obviously talking about as regards shape length and and bulk yeah 
Yeah. It, yeah, it's it's basically a big square waterproof bag, with, and it's got shoulder straps on it. Yeah. Okay, and when you're going through some of this um, specialised stuff, just give us an idea of what sort of money you could expect to pay for it, whether new or second hand. So the the inflatable, the the twelve six that I took is, I think that's around about a thousand pounds, just under, um, brand new. Uh, second hand. Um, it depends what brand you're buying and how old it is, but a decent second hand, I think you're probably looking seven, six hundred pounds, something like that. Okay, okay. So that was your your bag then, and presumably the um, paddle broke into sections and went into the same bag, I guess. Yeah. So the paddle was a, a fanatic as well. It's an eighty percent carbon fad paddle, so it's quite lightweight and it's very stiff, and that breaks down into three pieces. Um, and that just fits in the bag with the board. So that went into the hold of the plane then. So what was in the the carry-on? Well, the hold bag had a lot of other stuff in it as well. Ah, right, sorry. So I paid paid a little bit extra uh, to up my uh, allowance to 26 kilograms, and I had – I took one spare change of clothes – uh, I, I paddled the whole way around in the same pair of shorts and the same T-shirt, uh, but I did have a spare of each. Uh, I took a, a long john uh, wetsuit, so uh, just a one mil, one and a half mil thin wetsuit. Uh, I took some a waterproof jacket. Uh, I took some flip-flops. I took some wetsuit shoes. Uh, and, a, and, a, and a sun hat, a big sun hat, which was brilliant. Can I just, um, uh, again, sorry to interrupt you, but the reason for the wetsuit, was that because if the weather had been inclement, that would be the thing to wear? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I took uh, fire pot dehydrated food. Uh, so I bought, I bought enough food for two meals a day, and I took that with me. And... When you deflate the board, you've got a big, long piece of vinyl PVC plastic, essentially. So I I laid everything on that board, and then I rolled it all up with everything inside. So that protected the food, and it it protected, you know, the clothes just rolled up within it. And then I put that inside the bag with, I took a memory foam pillow. Um, You've got to have some luxury. So I stuck that in there as well. And um, that went in the hold. Okay. So all in all then, aside from the price of the board itself, how much did the trip cost you? So uh, so the flights, the flights cost me 180. Uh, and then I, I, I took a train up to London. I would have said all in, with with spending money that I spent there as well, I would say between five and six hundred. And would you say that was really good value adventure for a week? Yes, I would. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. So, for people that are listening to this, of perhaps you've piqued their interest, what should they do? What would you advise them to do to probably have a go at it before committing themselves to spending a thousand pounds or whatever it may be on a board? Yeah, definitely. Have a have a lesson. 
So uh, find out where your local paddleboard club is or, or anyone that's doing lessons. Uh, there's, there's people doing it all over the country now. There's loads of people doing it. Uh, go down, have a lesson. You'll get a feel for the boards um, and you'll get taught the proper technique. Um, for example, the, the, the main thing people get wrong is they put the paddle the wrong way around. Um, so you'll get taught the proper technique. You'll be able to try the boards. And they might have um, a selection of different boards as well. So they will have boards that are smaller that are going to suit smaller people and kids and uh, bigger boards that are going to suit bigger riders as well. Uh, and you can you can try them, have a lesson, uh, and, and that's definitely the way to start. I know you've done a fair amount of endurance sup racing. What do your compatriots think of this particular adventure or, or have they done something similar themselves? Uh, some have done something similar themselves. Some um, would love to do something like this, but maybe don't want to do it by themselves and want to want to do it in a group. Um, and yeah, everyone I spoke to thinks it's great. And um, they're all asking what's next. <laughs> you know, you get that question. And what would you, your answer be to that one? Oh, what's next? <laughs> well, I'm actually, I'm training to be a, an expedition guide, uh, a paddleboard expedition guide uh, with a company called Board Skills Academy. Uh, so I'm, I'm building up a logbook for that. So I'm actually up in Scotland for four days as an assistant guide um, in uh, May. Uh, and then I'm going over to Norway for five days to be an assistant guide for a company called Sup Norway in June. So I, I suppose that's that's the next sort of adventure is is that getting into guiding. And because I enjoyed this paddle so much, and I just thought I want to I want to be able to share this with other people. And and I know there's a lot of people that would love to do that, but don't really want to just get on a plane with a board and and go off and do it themselves. So. Um, I'd like to. I'd like to do that. Um, in terms of adventure, I think I'd like to do my next adventure. Uh, I'd like it to be a bit, bit more wild, somewhere where I can't stop for a coffee and and buy a Snickers bar, and you know, somewhere where I'm, I'm relying on my own skills a bit more. Sounds like Norway or Finland might be a good place for that. Yeah, Norway sounds cracking. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and I'd also really like to do, I've figured out that I can get all the way up to the Isle of Skye uh, from my front door, only using public transport. And uh, so I'd, uh, with no aeroplanes, buses, trains, etc. So that's, I've got that in my mind as well. The Isle of Skye seems quite a nice place. <laughs> uh, so I'll need to check that one out. My thanks to Phil for sharing his passion with enthusiasm for this pastime. From his photos over on the Outdoors Station blog page, it certainly looks more appealing than a dreamy mucky canal or river here in the UK. Incidentally, the links to everything we've discussed and contacts, etc. can be found also on the show notes. While you're there, you might be asked to join our newsletter and perhaps join in with suggesting other people for conversation. I do hope this podcast has earned the privilege of your time. So until next time, folks, enjoy the fresh air whenever you can. Take care of yourself and your loved ones. And bye for now.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. Thank you.